Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, LiveView 18.1 and 18.2 have already been released. Looks like they both come with a small number of bug fixes as well as some improvements. Nothing earth shattering here that we necessarily want to talk about, but check it out and upgrade if you're already on 018. All right. Speaking of LiveView, the Phoenix Profiler plugin was updated for LiveView 0.18 as well. It does require a 0.18 now, but the Phoenix Profiler is a plugin that allows you to get detailed information about the execution of any request on a live view. So in case you forgot what that does, that's that's what it's doing. Speaking of the Phoenix Profiler, of course, when LiveView 0.18 came out, I had to try it and jump on that because it's something I've been really excited about and looking forward to. And I had to disable the Phoenix Profiler for a time while that needed to be caught up to LiveView 18. So I was super happy to see that it's all working again and got that loaded back into my app. If you want to go a little deeper on the Phoenix Profiler, we had an interview in episode 88 with Michael Crum where he shared more about that. So definitely check that out. And next up, Livebook has a new tutorial blog post that came out and it was actually about how to work with Amazon Athena. And when I saw this, I was like immediately, I don't know what Amazon Athena is. There's so many AWS services with made up names, they don't mean anything. What I found out though, is that this is a built-in feature to Livebook. It's an interactive query service that makes it easy to analyze data in Amazon S3 using standard SQL. So imagine you have something like JSON blobs, or I don't even know what all the data formats are that would be supported, but they could be in S3 buckets. And then you can actively using the service query that data using SQL-like queries which sounds pretty interesting, you know, assuming your data is well-formed. But uh, then you can actually query that with Livebook and visualize it and get some neat, pretty graphs from that. So very cool. I can see how that might actually be more applicable to data science and maybe some machine learning stuff where some of these data sets are already available and maybe already in some S3 buckets that you could copy over or, or uh, upload that way. Yeah, I think that's the clincher right there is, is that Athena has support for connecting to uh, flat files in S3 buckets, and then just querying that like it's usual, like it's normal S3 or a uh, SQL. And uh, just to be clear, like they're they're not importing it into a database, like they're treating it as an external table, right? So just Athena just knows that that's an external table over there. It does its magic to make it SQL-y, you know. So it's not like a ETL process necessarily to to get that stuff imported to be queryable. Pretty cool feature, and yeah, this is like a great showcase for it. This is amazing. Phoenix Live Storybook has released 0.4. A lot of work was involved in shipping new features, fixing bugs, refactoring code, and even integrating feedback from both Jose Valim and Chris McCord. So we had to ask ourselves, has the collaboration already begun? It looks like it's been updated for LiveView 018 and now requires at least LiveView 018 to even function. You could check out episode 117 where we went deeper with the author of Phoenix Live Storybook. When I was checking out this change log here, there were a ton of changes. So a lot of breaking changes from previous versions. But one of the big changes is that attributes and slots declared in your LiveView components are supported by the playground. 
So that sounds really interesting because I know that that was one of those things that we're waiting to see. How can the playground use these kinds of attributes when when they can be queried and, and discovered programmatically? What can you do with that in a storybook like this? So very cool. I haven't had a chance to play with that yet. It looks like they updated the readme on their GitHub repo. And there is a screenshot on there that shows a little table on the bottom that has all the attributes, types, documentation, default with values, right? Based on the type. And so that looks looks pretty nice. All right. Also in the news, Supabase open sources PostgreSQL on Wasm. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about crunchy data kind of doing the same thing. And, and they released a, a blog post, uh, but I don't think that they open sourced it yet the same topic, right? PostgreSQL, like a sandbox in the browser. And the way that Crunchy Data was using it was for their tutorials, their samples. So that was really cool. And it looks like Supabase and another company called Snaplet were inspired and, and did the same thing based on that Crunchy Data post. But this time they open sourced their effort. And so you might be asking, why does this matter? And your instinct is right. It doesn't. <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> but there are some cool possibilities here. And the Superbase blog post says says the same thing and explores some possibilities here. So we can think of this as a browser-based, maybe in a, an ephemeral way to test against data. And there is a way to connect to that database through the browser, through WebSockets. And there's a lot more details on this blog post. So you've really got to go check this, this out. But just imagine with me here, this doesn't exist, and maybe it never will, but just imagine with me here, as we take a trip into imaginary land, imagine this in Livebook. So like, I literally just set up like a Livebook instance with a Postgres, you know, uh, connected to it or, or available at least. That way I can connect, you know, an Ecto and do queries against a real, a real database. And, and the expectation is that, you know, other users would be able to do the same thing, but they would have to replace their connection details with whatever they have set up. But what if they didn't have to do that? And Livebook had an option to say, turn on browser-based Postgres or something like that, and you're done. What that would that would remove so many barriers for writing articles and learning with Livebook and Elixir with a database. That sounds amazing. Anyway, go check out the blog post. It is really interesting to see how they achieve this. Uh, it is pretty, pretty fantastic. Wow. Yeah. And last up, we wanted to include a little bit of the weekly update that the Dockyard group is doing on LiveView Native. So if you recall, LiveView Native is an effort to support native Apple, iOS, and Android interfaces, but instead driven by LiveView. And Dockyard blog has been chronicling trying to do weekly updates of what they're doing. And so the update from this one, I just wanted to share this little nugget, is that Paul Schoenfelder, has been busy writing what will be our base implementation of a live view and channels client in Rust. This will require language-specific bindings for any consuming client, but that is significantly less work than writing the live view and channels clients from scratch, and it allows us to absorb any upstream changes into one library rather than having to do so across multiple implementations. So I appreciate the effort to make this public and keep everyone in the loop of what's going on. Yes, seeing progress is validating and, and exciting for people and for us as well, just because LiveView Native has the potential to be really disruptive, I think, for especially for people who want to use Phoenix and LiveView and Elixir. <laughs> so very exciting. Best of luck to them as they continue that work. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. You know, LiveView has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. 
When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Kip Cole. Kip, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Mike and team. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, this is going to be fun because you spoke at ElixirConf and it was a really engaging, entertaining, and super informative presentation, which I I encourage everyone to check it out when those videos become live eventually. That really prompted us to say, you know, we would love to talk more with Kip about what your interest and focus is. And you do a lot with internationalization, localization, and, you know, personalizing this data and like dates and times and and how really complicated that is. Because I remember starting with programming, thinking, oh, it's just, I'll just record the date and time when this was created. And, you know, it, that's, that's only the beginning, right? And there's so much more to dates and times, especially when we're talking about collaborating with multiple people across time zones, across geographies, and so much more complicated than you would think it should be. But, you know, that's the real world. So I'm glad that you could come and join us and talk more about what you're doing around these topics and that you've, you've been doing a number of different things. So before we get into all that, though, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Well, uh, the first thing you should know about me is that I'm an imposter. I am in the, the really lucky position that I get to write software because it's a personal passion and I love it, not because it's my job and my income. And that puts a bit of stress sometimes on time management and commitments, but I do work in the IT industry. I don't work as a developer, but I have a deep and abiding passion for the idea that in everything we do, there should be the best possible quality and the highest possible commitment you make. And it it means that I end up, I hope, delivering the kind of support and service on the software that I write that you'd expect from a professional organization, uh, only I do it for free because I love it and I don't I don't want to compromise the joy that comes from that. But I feel like an imposter because I, I certainly don't come with the credentials that many of your audience uh, do, nor the rigor and discipline necessary to do this as a career. But hopefully I make up for that by a little bit of humor and amusement and engagement in in the topics that I get involved in. And and that's my luxury. I get to choose what I want to work on. I don't have someone telling me, uh, you need to go on work on this uh, general ledger posting uh, process. (laughs) Whoa, how cool is that? Uh, I get to say, no, I don't like Java and I'll never do anything in Java ever, ever. And lots of people don't have the joy of being able to say no. So I do. I have sometimes a fair amount of time on my hands because I sit on a lot of airplanes airplanes for a long period of time. And that gives me the thought space to consider and think what I'm doing. Uh, So that helps. I'm based in Asia. I'm Australian by birth. I've had the pleasure of living in in Europe and the US, but I think Asia is the most vibrant set of cultures, uh, diverse in every possible way that that can be imagined, and the fastest growing economies that we have in the world today. So maybe that's kindled in me this interest in 
and what I think of as the intersection between human culture and computing, which is an incredibly messy intersection because computing wants to be precise and specific and invariant, and human culture is none of those things. So it's a messy intersection, and that just makes it fun. Well, I have to ask then, how did you end up deciding to spend that time, this, this free time of yours, or, or this non-work time, working in these libraries and things, and you chose Elixir to do it in, given all, since it wasn't a work criteria that, oh, you need to work in this language. How is it you chose to do Elixir? How did you even find it? Uh, I I was a Rubyist for a while. Well, well, if you go back far enough in time, you know, to like the 17th and 18th century when I was born, yeah, that was, uh, my first job was writing COBOL programming. In in fact, at at the sort of earliest level, I'm one of those guys that thought I'm going to be the world's best computer designer when I left high school and went to university and discovered that's actually quite hard. And as a result, found myself no longer at that university. And my mother said, that's really interesting. So now you need to get a job. Uh, so I advertised myself as a uh, as a programmer, and someone silly enough gave me a job and said, "Can you write COBOL?" And I said, "Yes." And then I went and bought a manual. So this is probably the story of my life in many respects, and not uniquely. So I, I fully respect. But for quite a while afterwards, I I, I moved into other parts of the industry. But I I really enjoyed what Matt's was doing with Ruby at the time. And I did jump for a while onto the to the Rails bandwagon, and I enjoyed that a lot. And I enjoyed it particularly because I just loved monkey patching core classes, right up until the point where I didn't like it anymore. <laughs> uh, at that time, I was aware of Jose's work on the core team. Uh, I was working with some of the guys that were doing I18N work in, in Ruby, and so when Jose moved on to start doing Elixir, I didn't. I missed the first couple of years, but subsequent to that, I thought that looks really, it looks approachable and interesting. I prefer the functional paradigm. Uh, and even in those early days, I think a really positive community was forming. So that was deeply motivating to me. And I thought, okay, I need something to get my teeth into. I, I tend to learn by, by doing I was doing some I18N stuff in Ruby. Why don't I do that in Elixir? I mean, really, let's just make this a weekend project to do some of the internationalization work, and that'll be a good weekend project. And somehow, now six years later, I'm still not finished. Uh, so I suppose that makes me a typical <laughs> developer, I'm not really keeping to my own uh, timelines and roadmaps. So is this is this the invention of, of uh, XCLDR then? Is this Is this how long? The project that you started working on? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. In fact, it was only when I was putting together a presentation, uh, which I did virtually for Elixir Confi U, I went to look back at the library and find out when I started this thing. And it was six years ago. And uh, no one was more surprised than I was because most <laughs> people that know me would think that I don't have the attention span necessary to commit to anything uh, that long except my marriage. So uh, very, very surprising uh, in in very many respects, but the truth is, I still love it. I still learn a lot. I still think what the common locale data repository team, the CLDR team, that the, that does all the hard work on the data, do an amazing job for this industry that goes unsung and unheralded. And it's a joy, really, to try and take a huge body of work that tries to capture some of the knowledge and behaviour of humans, and try and present that in a way that a developer can use it simply and easily, because I think by common acclaim, the native libraries, LibICU and Friends, that are published by the consortium 
are uh, unapproachable and difficult in so many different ways. And I use that as my yardstick. How easy can it be for a developer to onboard an application and get benefit from it, whether they're working in one locale uh, or 100? And so so far, okay. I give a, I give a passing grade, not, not a high distinction, but at least a passing grade. I find it interesting that XCLDR is like one of your first big contributions to the Elixir community because that there is a lot of macro programming in that. That's quite a advanced thing to do, especially for your bis, your first big you know uh, contribution. I, I've actually been looking at it as inspiration for something that I'm doing, and yeah, there's a lot of cool things that you're you're doing in there to make it portable and not like having global config. And I know it didn't always start that way, but yeah, macro programming, that's that's pretty advanced. So you, sh- you, you should do yourself a favor and not say that you're <laughs> you're an amateur, right? <laughs> you certainly have good credentials here. Well, that's, that's kind of you to say, but when I reflect upon, I mean, I, and I did trash a, a whole version 1.0, I went down a lot of places that were re- really bad practices in, in centralized configuration and then trying to introduce ways of recompiling dependencies during the, you know, a whole bunch of really nasty, nasty stuff that I managed to get to get out of. But there's no doubt in my mind that one of the great joys about Elixir is the way that Jose crafted a metaprogramming environment that is so comfortably aligned. You know, the first programming language I really got passionate about was Lisp. And I'm not the first person to recognize some similarities in the way that Elixir operates and the way that Lisp operates. I still have my original copy of the MacList 1.0 Lisp programming manual for for Multics, which which, uh, dates me at least to the right decade for anyone that's old enough to be around at the time. And I don't take issue with your commentary around macros, but there's very, 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 very few macros in EXLDR, but there's a lot of metaprogramming and there is certainly a congruence, but they are different things. And I've often thought it's unfair that the work that I've done is not easily consumable by an Erlang developer because I don't think there's an equivalent for Erlang. But it is so deeply wedded to the metaprogramming environment of Elixir that it would be almost impossible, I think. And I've actually thought about how would I do this without the metaprogramming to bake the data structures into a usable code format in a in a straightforward fashion that wouldn't have me spend a million years trying to do code gen. And I don't think I could. So the 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 value here is definitely what Jose built into the system. And uh, makes it just makes a, it just makes programming a joy. That's what it comes down to. I have the luxury of doing what I want to do. If I didn't enjoy it, stop. Maybe you could take a moment and give a elevator pitch for what EXCLDR is. What this library is, because I'm sure we have people who are listening to this who like, like I don't know what that is. Help us all figure out like and follow along what what this library is and what it's doing. I, I assume most people don't know what it is, and there's no reason that they that they should. Uh, but the genesis and the idea of putting together the libraries of which the primary one is EX, how boring is that? Uh, CLDR, Common Locale Data Repository, comes from the work that is done by a small team of people, uh, all of whom are typically staff members of the large vendor organizations, Google and, and Apple and Amazon and so on, who recognized 15 years ago now that in order to build products, 
let's just use iPhone for, as an example, but it's no by no means limited to that, or a Windows PC or Mac OS, that there are going to be consumers of these products that live in multiple countries and cultures and territories and backgrounds and histories. And that each and every one of them expects to engage with the system according to the culture that they come from or are most comfortable with. And there hadn't previously been very good codification of the data and the knowledge to be able to do that and do it in such a way that developers didn't have to reinvent how to do that for every application that they wrote. So the the repository itself is simply a very large number of very complicated XML files, my favorite data format. <laughs> I know there are people who genuinely love it. They can do XPass for breakfast and, and, and enjoy that. I simply, I simply do not. Thankfully, in, in latter years, they also now publish the data in a JSON format, which comes with its own challenges. But at its core, what I do is to take data, which is produced by a community of linguists and translators and IT developers and human cultural experts and and although it's an informal and volunteer gathering, the rigor they bring to verifying the quality of the data and how it's structured is amazing and it deserves far more credit than they get for that effort. Now, they publish a library called LibICU, and there's now there's a LibICU-C, LibICU-J, so for Java and C. There's now a LibICU-X. And if you think about the I18N module in JavaScript, that's actually CLDR under the under the covers with a new um, API wrapper on top. So good news is everyone in the world uses this data in some way, shape, or form to present information to users and to consume content from users in a, in a localized fashion. So my work with Elixir is one of the very few, apart from the Ruby implementation, the only one I'm aware of, there's actually a native implementation for the host language oriented towards making the developer experience of this data repository as Elixir-friendly and approachable as, as possible. Um, so CLDR, Common Locale Data Repository, and my library is just a way to wrap that data and make it consumable for everyone. And I'm passionate about that because it just simply pisses me off to use any system whatsoever that makes no attempt to recognize who I am, what I care about, what I want to engage with, and how to work with me. And, and it doubly pisses me off. I have no idea whether you're going to beep it or not, but that you, you know that's the joy of, <laughs> of non-live recording. It would be funny too. I'm not Howard Stern, so it won't get any worse than that, uh, on this call uh, at least. Uh, I, I simply hate it because I also spent 10 years in the e-commerce space uh, on, the, on the vendor side, and I think it's commonly known both as consumers and as e-commerce platform providers, that if you don't hold, maintain, and grow customer engagement, your cart conversion rate goes down, your average lifetime value goes down. Why would you not make an effort to engage with your user or your consumer in the best possible way? And the reality is, I think in Elixir, with the work that I've done, it's no more difficult than doing it in uh, in a super superficial manner and treating everyone the same. So I've just taken a fairly long loop there and I can barely remember the question, but hopefully I came some way to answering it nevertheless. Can you give us an example of how this library can help me customize or personalize the experience for a user in a different culture? 
That's, uh, yeah, that's a very reasonable question, Mark. So I'll start with the simple bits, numbers. You and I share at least some cultural back, uh, background in which we tend to group numbers when we when we output them and consume them uh, in, in triplets. So we put a, a comma moving left from the decimal point uh, every three digits. Uh, Europeans look upon you Americans and me as a proxy for you Americans because I sound similar. Look, look in horror and say, you imperialist Americans are forcing upon us the comma separator. Don't you know that civilized cultures use a non-breaking space in the majority of cases to do the same? You're just you're just visually polluting my environment. And not only that, and I, I'm saying this jokingly, but there are absolutely cultural overtones that are transmitted that are not always positive in something so small as putting in a comma. So that's that's at the simplest level. I'll give you two shorter examples that come with that. Our friends in India, soon to be the largest population in the world, definitely the development powerhouse of the enterprise software development world, do not group their digits by threes. They, in fact, group the first three digits in three and subsequent groups in two. So there's actually a variable grouping of digits. And so not only is it disrespectful, it's just wrong. Don't you know that the zero <laughs> was invented in India? There was no use of the digit zero up until the invention or the the, the use of the the, uh, the zero in in India. And that's there are some cultures that do grouping of digits after the decimal point. There's a there's a myriad of things. And of course, if you had to think about that as a developer every time you wrote software, it'd make your head hurt, and you would, of course, give up. So what I've tried to do is give an API level which allows you infinite control over the format of the numbers that you're formatting, but a much simpler API that is as simple as cldr.toString, which is exactly the same semantics as the native kernel.toString, only it'll take the locale in mind and deliver you the outcome. And on the other side of that, anyone that's written any application continuing up to this day on modern web browsers ever tried to capture numeric input in an input field? And how much fun has that been if you've wanted to be able to capture a number which might have commas in it or might have spaces in it? And if you're in Germany, the decimal point's actually a comma, not a, not a, a decimal point. So what the hell's that number mean anyway if you don't know what the locale is? So it can take care of all of that too, including currency parsing and so on. So the point being, you don't have to think about it. It'll automatically adapt to the locale that you're working with. And look, that's just the simplest level. Same thing for dates and, and, and times. For me, it gets a lot more interesting when we get to the area of, of units of measure. Units of measure, as you would be uh, familiar, again, uh, being in the developing country of the USA, where you use the imperial units of measure. I think they're called uh, gallons and furlongs or something something like that. You may not be aware there are only three countries left in the world that use the British imperial units of measure. Uh, the first one is America. The second one is Liberia. And the third one is the economic and social powerhouse of Myanmar. So there, there are cultural overtones that come through everything here. And the joy for me has been not simply to be able to translate, but think about units of measure. And it is perhaps the most fascinating one. Let's talk about the height of a human being. The height of a human being is fascinating even, even in single cultures. So in the US and many other countries, 
no, that's not true. It's only the US, Liberia, and Myanmar. You would be considered to be six foot two. But how are you measured if you're 18 months old? You measure in inches only. If you're in Europe, it will depend on the country in whether you might be 1.8 metres or 1,800 centimetres. And if you think about, back to our e-commerce example, and you're working for H&M and you want a web store that's able to deliver fashion items with the right sizing, you're not going to turn up and go, I want, I want a shirt that's for a six-foot-two person. I don't even know what that means. I'll go to a different online shop in order to do that. But you also think about the conversions of this becomes quite interesting too, because if I convert, you know, six foot two and it comes out to 37.4673 millimeters, that's equally unapproachable. And there's a whole <laughs> set of things that come together. And then you get the, the, the great deal of fun that in the US you use for fuel consumption miles per gallon. In, in most of the rest of the world, it's, uh, it's liters per hundred kilometers. It's actually an inverted unit. And so there's a lot of things that have to happen that are, for me, deeply fascinating and very, very interesting. They are mathematically challenging. The writing the code for them is a constant challenge, but the satisfaction in getting an outcome, it's amazing. And every six months when CLDR publishes new code, uh, October will be CLDR 42. Uh, so that tells you that's 20 years they've actually been, been, been doing this. All of the libraries, I've now got to a point where they consume the new data with almost almost no change. But every time I run the test suite on units, I'm, I'm scared. Yeah. There's, there's some stuff going on there that, that it works, but I'm always afraid that something's going to break. So it just it just simply comes back to, again, that make it easy to consume and deliver. Even in this next release, they're extending the domain, and they do this frequently, and I, and I love it, is into the domain of person names. And you're thinking, why would there need to be a consensus on how you format people's names you know i mean surely it's just first name given first name middle initial last name except of course other than a few countries no one says last name it's typically family name and in many countries if you're formatting the family name comes first and the given name comes second and and what do you do with all the 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 honorifics and suffixes and prefixes and how do you format those and do you write that differently if the letter is coming from the irs versus whether it's coming from your mum and, and all of these things have come back to that messy intersection between humanity and computing and uh, watching them write the spec online and, and getting it to the level of maturity where it's ready to go is also uh, deeply fascinating. So it's genuinely interesting, I, I, I realise, for me, but not necessarily anybody else or not many. And it was curious because I went Googling, great, there must be prior art. There must be books and books and books on how to write internationalized applications that are engaging for consumers. And the only book I could find, only book I could find, was a book by Microsoft Press from about 1987 wow. that I bought secondhand <laughs> on eBay in hard copy uh, to, be, to be shipped to me, which turned out to be not in any way about how to engage with customers and create an opportunity for developers. So very excitingly, I had a ping from an, an elixirist in South Africa who's started a lot of really good work and writing a book on elixir and internationalization and uh, very likely, not very likely, I'm deeply committed to collaborating with him to, to get something to market. To say at the moment, my contribution is mentioning his efforts on this podcast and not much else. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I really got to get around to that. All right. So I, I want to repeat some of what you said because I don't want it to get lost. So XL, XCLDR is consuming a lot of data sets from respected you know, bodies of, of people that are just collecting this, this messy intersection of people and cultures and how to express things. And some of those things include how to format lists, how to format numbers, you know, how to how to format units, dates and times and calendars. You know, there's some contributions from other Elixir folks that, that talk about territories and other and and languages. CLDR works really well with with uh, Git text, which is basically a, a built-in like library for Elixir. And uh, and I don't want to lose lose some of the optimization here because C, the CLDR dataset can be so huge. Your library allows allows us to specify the ones that we're, we we can support, and so it doesn't it doesn't necessarily balloon the size of your entire code base with all possible combinations of everything you get to you get to select the you know a subset of that. So it's it's even optimized, which is really great. You pitch way better than I do, David. Thank you. <laughs> so so and 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 yes, the API is incredibly friendly. So you said it yourself, you know, you you try to 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 mimic the like just two string and the only other piece of information you need is what the locale is in in most cases, I think. And so as long as you have that locale, which typically travels with the user, you know, in your system, then you know, two string user.locale or whatever, however you got it. Boom! You've made it so much easier to engage with the with the with your users. So that is that is the joy of using XCLDR, and so I love that. I also want to talk about the joy of tempo and time and how to talk about that. But before we get there, is there anything else about CLDR that is like I don't know another fun fact or something else that like interesting that it can that it can do? You've already convinced me of how CLDR is like XLDR is is necessary for engaging with a, a multitude of people. But is there anything else? I find it deeply fascinating that most people are familiar with the idea of a, a local ID, you know, EN or EN-US. And I must say that when I started on this journey, I thought that was it. That's interesting. Good. I know everything I need to know. Now I know that you speak American English or jolly good English English or Indian English or one of the other 45 different variants of English that are captured Southern. in the uh, in CLDR. I'm not, not, not going to go there. That's, I don't need to get any more, any more hate mail. But it was only after I started writing a parser for this that, that, and diving into the standard that I realized that the, the, the locale or the language tag as the vernacular would have it, allows you to capture a whole lot more. Using that string, you can identify what currency you prefer. Do you want it to be formatted in an accounting approach or another approach? What calendar do you use? What's the first day of the week that you prefer to consider the first day of the week? Are you a Sunday person or a Monday person or a Wednesday person? You can capture an enormous amount of information to identify a user's preferences and therefore, I, I have become more strident in my view that the only true and real path to identifying what a user's preference is, is through the locale string. And uh, there's some more work to be done there because most browsers, although allowing you to configure and transmit, don't allow you to customize to the extent that would allow for a better experience be to, to be delivered. And that's whether you're using Chrome or Safari or Firefox or Brave or, or, or anything else. So that's an that's another step where I think we can get better. But for people that truly want to understand the depth of thought, 
looking at language tags, that's a good way to get yourself off to sleep in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was one of the questions I had, though, is like, if I want to store that personalization information, is it just that language string, like the, the ISO kind of little string that's in, identifies a country and language? Actually, it's not, it's not even a country, is it? It's just a language. Well, no, it, it, it's it's both, and and uh, I, I try to discourage the use of the term country because country is a political entity, and there are somewhere around about 147 disputed territories around the world where the t- the intended audience has very deeply held views on which country they belong to, but very consistent views on which territory. And uh, secondly, you'll see that, uh, in fact, even Apple changed its policy recent recent versions of iOS and macOS, uh, in which they've removed the national flags from alongside the language selector boxes because it's deeply offensive to many people to, well, given the colonial histories around the world, if you're in India and you go to a drop-down box to select England or English and you see the Union Jack sitting there, this is deeply offensive to millions of people. So some of these things we can do a better job, all of us, uh, together. But if I just gave you the string EN-US, I can already infer and it is inference, but it's pretty reasonable. Actually, just just say en, just en. What can I infer? I can infer you're in the U.S. because the country that has the highest proportion of native-speaking English people is the U.S. Uh, I can infer from the U.S. what the currency is. So I now know which country. I know now know which currency. From that, I can derive which calendar. There's actually a lot that we can derive using heuristics, to be sure. And some of that breaks down. So if I said and uh, Jose is well aware of this. Uh, the language code was PT, Portuguese. You would probably make an assumption about which country or territory that would refer, and you think, well, Portugal, of course. But the answer is no. The answer is Brazil. The largest percentage of native-speaking Portuguese people is Brazil. It's consistent in delivering a result that is often unexpected. So the answer is yes. Language tags can tell you nearly everything you need to know. But as an industry, we're doing a poor job of using them that way. And, I, and I'm sure it's up to the application on what other preferences in addition to that language tag could could be relevant. Yeah. Like all the best RFCs, or in this case, BCP 47, the best current practice, there's a private use set of encodings. So here's the very formal standard, and it is a very formal standard. And here's the escape hatch or anything else that you want. <laughs> yeah, like, like there's probably not a best current practice on uh, editor preferences, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Not. You know, I'm I'm still on text date two, and I think that stopped being developed about 1996. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I got some catching up to do. So, David teased this topic, but we do want to talk to you also about what you spoke at ElixirConf about, which is this time algebra problem called Tempo. This library you created. Tell us where did Tempo come from? Why did you start digging into this to solve this problem? In the pursuit of the the CLDR work, uh, formatting dates and times becomes important. And I'm not brave enough to even tackle parsing them yet in a locale sensitive fashion. Uh, I'll get get back to that sometime, but it ain't on the top 10 of the to-do lists. But when when you dig into the language tags again, CLDR identifies the typical calendars in use around the world. So the Buddhist calendar, the Gregorian calendar, the three different forms of the well-known Islamic calendar, the Hebrew calendar, the Thai calendar, the Vietnam, and so on. So 
when I was younger, I would do just enough and move on. But I've I've developed this really, really bad personality trait as I've got older, which is I can't stop until I've done the job properly. So as a result, formatting dates and times, that bit's easy. You know, once you've cracked numbers, then it's just an accumulation. The question was, where's the calendar coming from? And there aren't any. So I needed to go and write the calendars themselves. And this was at the time when Jose was normalizing the API for the calendar protocol, which was helpful. Some extensions were required. And then I was actually revisiting a little bit of an old flame because there's a fabulous book called Calendrical Calculations that is the seminal tone on calendars. I love it so much. I've got every edition they've ever published just in case there was something new and interesting. And there always is. So that's definitely one that I can recommend for anyone that's got a calendar fetish. So, you know, the the one other person on this podcast that cares about that can go and find it uh, somewhere or other. Now, to do that for Gregorian calendars, that's pretty straightforward. That's just mathematics. And it's true for many calendars. But now we get to the family of calendars called lunisolar calendars, which are the Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean calendars and Japanese. That means you need to go and do some astronomical calculations, and there wasn't a library for that. So I had to go and write an astronomical library, and uh, there's an equally fantastic book. It's the seminal reference called Astronomical Algorithms, not available in digital format, and I don't even think it's been published anymore. I think I had to buy that on eBay as well. So between calendrical calculations and numerical algorithms, you're all set for doing calendars, uh, but you may need to check yourself into a mental health facility Uh, at the same time. (laughs) And the natural consequence of writing all of these calendars was was to go looking at the forum as I do regularly, how come after 50 years of enterprise-style computing, time is still a problem? How ridiculous is that? Because you think, now let's go back to human life. In your everyday pursuit of the things that you do, do you ever in your private life find time zones coming up in conversation other than for their own sake? Uh, Good morning, dear. I've got lunch today at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with one of my friends, but at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, I've got a call. No, you don't do that. The context is well understood. The introduction of the complexity of time zones, not time zones themselves, but complexity of time zones, comes only because as computing professionals and amateurs, we need to reconcile time across different individual human experiences. And unfortunately, being computer people, we make that a feature of the conversation rather than the context. So a lot of what I want to do with Tempo is take things that we make as features and turn them back simply into context. So that's the first part. By the way, I was thinking, David, your earlier comment, there are actually examples in histories where one side turned up for battle at the agreed time, but the wrong day, because this, <laughs> happened, this, this also happened between, between one of the Eastern European countries and Western, because the Western countries had moved to the Gregorian calendar and Eastern Europe moved from the Julian calendar much later. And they turned up eight days late. <laughs> I'm not sure how they settled the dispute. I imagine a lot of people didn't die because of calendars, which is a, <laughs> a useful thing. Yeah, some good news. And on time zones themselves, there isn't actually even an ISO standard. There's the Olsen database everyone's familiar with. But what is really fascinating, and then there's another library that I maintain, I, I didn't write it, but I do now maintain it, called TZ World or TZ World underscore in the middle. And it's based upon a fabulous project called Time Zone Boundary Builder. And it's this very small group of people who merge the Olsen Time Zone database 
with the OpenStreetMap data and take the polygon. So if I now tell you, if you now tell me where you are, I can tell you what your time zone is. And they are fanatical about accuracy. There has been, you, you can see it in the issues thread, there's been an issue looking at a very small part of Canada outside of Toronto, where it turns out in the 1970s, there was a person traveling around making claims about where the overlap between the First Nations people's territories and the European territories co-mingled. It's a little bit like the confusion in Arizona where some of the some of the tribes recognize daylight saving and some don't. And they've been unwrapping some of that because it turns out basically he just bullshit the whole thing for a whole bunch of years. Uh, and, and it does it, it is it is fascinating on on how the human history intersects on things. Uh, but it does all come down to railroad. And in fact, time measurement in the way that we present it, years, months, days, hours, minutes, seconds, is really nothing more than a, uh, the historic attempt to synchronize astronomical events with human existence. And, and, it, and that's messy again. So wh- why, is it, why is it sexagesimal counting, six digits? Because the Sumerians used 60. Why did they use 60? There's a, there's a couple of reasons. More common factors in a sensibly available number, one, two, three, four, five, six, 10, and 12, which is great for if doing math, if you haven't got a calculator or an abacus. And secondly, and I'm doing a visual now, which doesn't work well on a podcast, but if you take four fingers of one hand, you've got three segments per finger, then that's 12 things you can count with. And if you use your thumb, you can point at all 12 of those. Now you've got an abacus. There's the invention of the abacus. 12 segments, then 12 is 12. That fits very nicely into 60. So 60, 60. Why, why 24? Well, the Egyptians had this idea that the day is split into 10 hours. Now, before time zones and regular clocks, the length of the day, although Egypt is fairly close to the equator, the length of the day varies. So they would take the actual length of the day and divide it by 10. So an hour was a variable length unit. And then because of the importance in Egyptian mythology and religion of of sunrise and sunset, they said, okay, that's two more hours then. There's 10 hours of daylight and there's another two state sunset and and uh, sunrise so that's 12 we're back at 12 and okay nighttime 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 how many how will we split up nighttime well heck we're doing 12 for the day we may as well do 12 for the night 24 hours good so now we've got the sumerians to think for the 60 60 and seconds and minutes and you're probably thinking why seconds minutes well minute is a, is the origin in the greek root for small so smaller than an hour small and seconds is the second smallest unit after that and there used to be thirds and fourths divided by 60 divided by 60, but they couldn't measure those. So they came out of, they fell out of common use a couple of thousand uh, years ago. So the reason why you can see Jose supporting the idea of data arithmetic adding hours, minutes, and seconds is because all cultures, that's not quite true. The vast majority of cultures agree on a common usage of an invariant second, minute, hour, you know, hours in a day. The reason we don't support in the standard library anything above that is variable number of months in a calendar, variable numbers of days in a month, and it's a complete pain in the backside, as uh, everyone agrees. So really, really, Star Trek had it right. You know, star dates 246.3, just to use a common reference. (laughs) And in fact, astronomers today are saying, you know, we should give up on trying to synchronize astronomical events to define time in human existence. Just pick a number and just add something to it on a frequent basis. But, you know, 
the USA hasn't moved onto the metric measurement system, the chances of changing time are slim. Yeah, we just need a, a just a monotonic clock. It just has to keep going up. That's all. Just a monotonic clock, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, the the Unix folks uh, had it right, right? Well, y- yes, yes, with, with a, with a, <laughs> but with a few with a few exceptions. So I come back to birthdays. My birthday happens to be April the third. Please tell me how I store April the third in a database. How do I represent that as any one of the three, uh, four date and time structures in Elixir? And by the way, why do we have more than one anyway? If we agree for the moment in the Einsteinian view that time flows in a single direction only and is a continuous flow of time from Big Bang to Big Crunch, why do we have date separate from time, separate from date time, separate from naive date time? doesn't make any sense. We don't wake up in the morning to do that, do we? It's just to justify the salaries of software engineers. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it actually comes back. The separation of date and time is actually a bit of a natural separation into the things we can represent easily as a number because we all agree on the fixed segmentation of time, time of day. Better, better to be said time of day. Whereas dates, that's calendars, man, that's complicated. Let's, uh, yeah, let's ignore that. That's not, not helpful uh, to us. Now, my view is that human beings work with this ambiguity all day of their exi- and every day of their existence. Therefore, it's actually intellectual laziness on the part of our industry that we've we've allowed ourselves to create complexity we don't need. Now, that's a pretty bold claim and statement, but again, I come back to the fact that I'm an imposter, so I get to experiment with this with the belief that there is a unifying way to represent time in computing that can be more closely matched to the human experience. And so that was the theme of my talk in time. And the central tenet here is that a lot of this complexity comes from computers like finite precision, so numbers. But humans typically use time in the sense of an interval. So when I say to you my birthday's on April the 3rd, you don't immediately say, well, what time of day down to the second was that? It, it, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't really matter what year I was born. You just know that on April the 3rd next year, I'm going to have a birthday. And you don't think to yourself, I wonder if there's a leap year in between. It doesn't matter. So it turns out that if we treat time as an interval, then a few things come into play. The first one is time as an interval can have a defined resolution. I don't say precision. Precision is about measurement. Resolution is about the degree to which we express ourselves. So I can say to you April the 3rd, or I can give you a time down to an appropriate level of resolution, and I'm good to go. And I still don't have to give you the year associated with that to be able to represent it. And I can do date arithmetic and time arithmetic as well. Uh, and it starts to get interesting right up until Jose sends you a DM on Twitter and says, what about time zones? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny, though, that you just bring up this idea about how we have this desire historically to tie human events to astronomical things and measures. And it just reminded me of a, an article I saw recently. I'll just drop this in the link to this in the show notes. It was about the leap second and the incredible problems that cause us for computer systems. And there's an article talking about why Amazon, Facebook, and Google want to scrap the leap second. And that's like this whole tie back of, well, the earth is changing its rotation speed and we have to uh, you know, account for that within our calendar. It's like, well, maybe not, maybe not that way. It, it's a very good point they make because even when you when you dive deeper, and I promise that it won't be a long answer, uh, you, you ask yourself, what is a year? 
well, did you mean the sidereal year, or did you did you did you mean uh, a solar year? I mean, it's the basis upon which we take these astronomical observations does itself have a huge amount of variability depending on your frame of reference, too. So yeah, let's get rid of the leap second because I'm not implementing it either. It's too damn difficult. Yes, yes, I, I, yeah. It's like why can't we just like wait for them all to batch up and then do one correction? You know, sometime I don't know. I also wanted to mention just that you have another library that people should probably be aware of, and this is the Money Library. So can you give people a quick intro to what this is? This is a, this is a, a great example of why I made a mistake in calling EXCLDR an internationalization library, because Money's sole and only purpose is to be a reliable source of how you deal with money. How you deal with money is really important because money, for, for the obvious reasons, but there's a lot of currencies around the world and how you represent them is really important and they have different rounding rules and they have different precisions. People often say, well, just use integers. Well, that's great. Here's the integer. Tell me, can you tell me for this currency, how many decimal places does it assume? The Japanese yen has zero decimal places. One country, I think in South America, it divides its major currency unit into fifths which is a horrible thing to represent in a computer. We don't like fifths. They don't, they don't work out well in floating point in many cases. There are two currencies in which the rounding rules for cash money, the stuff in your hand, and the accounting money, stuff in the bank, are different. That's Australia and Switzerland. Australia and Switzerland, the minimum denomination of cash money is five cents or five centimes. In America, you still have this useless piece of copper coinage that fills up uh, piggy banks uh, around the world and has no other economic value whatsoever, but of course, very common uh, down to the down to the cent. And if you don't get the rounding right on those, if you don't ask yourself, when I've got a chain of arithmetic operators, I'm adding several numbers together and then I'm doing some math, when do I do the rounding? And what what is the rounding? There are five different ways you can round the decimal number. These things need to be cared about. They need to be conserved and considered. And that's the purpose of money. And the only reason money, EX money works is because of the data in CLDR. And it's a great counterexample of if I'd said internationalized money, no one would use it. But just because it's money and leverages CLDR, it works really well. And it, I think it's an amazing library, not because of my work, but because of that data. Well, Kip, this has been really fun. And I'm sure we could keep going because there's so much nuance and I'm, I'm sure entertaining stories as well to illustrate some of these different complexities. I would certainly want to point people to your talk when it becomes available. And, and when that does become available, you know, dear listener, we will let everyone know uh, as the Elixir Conference talks become public. But if people want to learn more about this topic or follow you online or get involved with any of these libraries, where should they go to do that? I am the least social, social guy in the world. I frequent the Elixir Slack and Elixir Forum on a daily basis. I've got a little bit more active on Twitter because some people really like the t the tempo talk, and so it was a I've started that up, uh, and otherwise just jump into any of the repos. I'm happy to have a conversation on a topic, a suggestion, a request, or whatever it is. That's also perfectly fine. But I'd say typically the forum or or Slack probably the the fastest and easiest way to engage if you have a question, a comment, or abuse. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kip. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us and and talk about this really interesting problem space because as developers, we want to create products that people enjoy, that they get value from. 
And if there are little things that we can do to improve the experience and adoptability of that product with another culture that we don't have our mindset in that other culture, we're not even aware that there is this other perspective, just being able to use something like CLDR or the money library, which depends on that, or you know, any of these kinds of things can really help us to be more inclusive. And I think really that's what we want. We want people to love our products. Uh, thank you, David. I, that's, the, that's the passion I have. And I would only extend it a little bit by saying, even if you're working in a monoculture, it's still incredibly valuable to create customer engagement, whatever the customer is, uh, and therefore localizing appropriately for that culture is also very important. Well, thank you so much. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.